Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snack Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Hey, this is Power Card, aka Project Pat, and you're listening to the Baltimore Beatdown Podcast, the best Ravens podcast on the planet. That's pretty incredible. In fact, it's La Marvelous. Thank you guys. All right, what is going on, you guys? It is Jake here coming to you guys Friday, Memorial Day weekend, May 22nd. Uh, not sure when we're going to be releasing this one, maybe uh, over the weekend, maybe on Monday, the actual holiday, but we wanted to get something recorded ahead of the weekend as Spencer is heading down to Ocean City pretty much as we speak. Uh, we just wrapped up an interview with uh, our good buddy Emery Hunt over at the football game plan, uh, so pretty much when we wrap that up, Spencer hopped in a car with the franchise, and he is heading down to OC for some uh, responsible Memorial Day weekend fun, but uh, yeah, like I said, we wanted to get something recorded, uh, so we dialed up Emery. He is uh, just absolutely tremendous uh, football analyst. Analyst, independent football analyst located up in the New York, New Jersey area, uh, and just does a tremendous job covering all types of different leagues, covering college and the draft. So we wanted to get him on to get some thoughts on the Ravens offseason, their draft, just a ton of great stuff. So that's a tremendous interview with him that we have for you guys. Uh, before we get into that, just wanted to cover a couple of different housekeeping notes. Uh, like Pernell McPhee saying that he wanted to uh, snatch souls or something like that. I saw that on Twitter from uh, Mink and Downing's podcast, The Lounge, which is uh, always a pretty good listen if you want to get some player interviews, so I'd recommend checking that out. Absolutely love Pernell McPhee. Uh, very excited to have him back in the fold yet again. So, uh, yeah, probably check that interview out if you want more from him, but uh, my take on it is that Pernell McPhee is awesome. Uh, the second thing we wanted to touch on real quick was Pete Prisco. Coming out with his top 100 player rankings, Pete always a controversial figure on the Twitter sphere, especially when it comes to certain types of player evaluation. But uh, I think he did a pretty good job here ranking Lamar Jackson at number seven. Pete writes, he won the league MVP last season, Jackson did, with his dynamic play and his ability to create something out of nothing. As he grows as a passer, and he will, he will stay up this high on the list and probably push even higher. So a little bit more respect from Lamar there from the national media and from a guy in Pete who not necessarily huge on mobile quarterbacks, but uh, 
this kind of past decade, man, Russell Wilson sort of broke his brain a little bit in that way. So uh, Pete kind of coming around a little bit and giving Lamar some very much well-deserved respect. So that's pretty much all we got as far as news. We recorded relative, relatively recently, so not a whole lot more to hit on uh, in that sense. And uh, yeah, with that, I'm going to go ahead and throw it over to the interview. Uh, whenever you guys do listen to this, I hope you had or have a tremendous Memorial Day weekend. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Call your parents. I'm out. All right, we now welcome on a very special guest. It is friend of the show, Emery Hunt. How you doing today, my man? I'm doing fine, man. I appreciate you guys bringing me on. Absolutely. It's been too long. I feel like uh, it's been almost a year at this point, so perfect timing to get you back. But first question, we've been uh, starting off with everyone here, man. What has the uh, quarantine setup been like for you? How's that been kind of for you as a content creator the last couple of months here? Yeah, it's been unique because when it all started, you had the XFL going on, so I was covering that. And then that was right at the beginning of what would, would have been pro day season. Um, so I wasn't able to go there and, and knock out all these pro days. And, you know, during this time leading up to the draft, I always take about two weeks prior to the draft to go knock out some college visits as well. And obviously all of that got shut down. So for me, it's just been about, you know, just hunkering down here in the home office, doing a lot of reading, a lot of research and just planning for content uh, down the line. So, you know, I was still able to be productive, but it just, I miss being out there and being able to be on the go like I normally uh, would have been. Yeah, absolutely. And have you seen any benefits conversely kind of arise from this situation? I mean, having a lot more time for player uh, player evaluation uh, and time to focus on your site. I mean, I know for me personally, there was just a lot less noise going on and a lot more film. Yeah, for me, it was more about getting certain things done um, that I usually would have put off or would have put off completely and now you had the time to really dive into it and you know we have a couple of projects coming down the pipe that you know hadn't had it not been for you know this pandemic i probably would have shelved those ideas uh you know for maybe three years honestly but now you have a little bit more time to, to work on some things and it pushes the timeline up so for me it's all about just making sure you maximize your time you know whether it's reading books that are unrelated to football or just, you know, really taking the time to recharge. Cause to be honest, it would have been from XFL to pro days to college visits to last week. I would have, I would have just gotten back from, uh, you know, covering the Canadian all-star game, uh, which, you know, they played their senior bowl before the season. So I would have been up there in Ottawa coming back to what would have been giants and jets rookie mini camps. So it would have been nonstop. And, you know, I would have been, sort of feeling burnt out early um, on the calendar. So I'm glad I had a, a little bit of time to force myself to really, uh, you know, recharge my batteries and, and just do things that you know, require a lot more thinking, a lot more um, depth to them and, you know, just reading a lot and, and you know, operating these plans that I, that I have in place uh, for the future. Yeah, weirdly, it's kind of a way to sort of recharge your batteries in a way that you're typically not able to, especially if you're an American and you're kind of working as much as we do. Uh, not sure how your Canadian buddies are uh, handling it, uh, you know, conversely there. But, you know, you do a ton of work evaluating each and every team. And, you know, based upon the way the offseason played out, how much do you think, you know, with these franchises, how much do you think they collectively had to change their strategies up as the world kind of rapidly began to change back in around March? I think it helped them in the sense of leaning more on the guys that have put the work in for, you know, the better part of two years. Uh, and I'm saying that to say, hey, scouts are out there 
for two years working on this draft class. And, you know, normally when draft time comes, you have a situation where the GM or the coaches get involved and they tend to, you know, muddy things up to where now you have too many opinions and it is all going to fall on the coach and the GM. The scout could be saying, hey, this guy is not that good. Uh, we've watched him for two years. We've talked to the coaches. We've talked to the medical staff on the, on the team. We've seen him at practice. We've seen how he interact with his teammates and other people around the program. Um, but the coach jumps into the process at the combine, sees him work out, and, and falls in love with him, gets him in the building, you know, on a, co- on a visit. And, you know, they're saying all the right things. So now the coach becomes even more enamored with him. The GM is trying to placate the coach and say, okay, we'll do this because the GM's success is tied to the coach's success and vice versa. And they'll go with that, you know, postseason, um, you know, interaction, whereas the scout saw the actual action for two years and advises against that. But now, because we didn't get all of that uh, that we normally get, they have to rely on the scouts. That's why I think you see the draft. You saw the draft as a whole just go on smoothly. I I really had no issues with the majority of teams' draft classes. I thought like, wow, this is they've d- done a good job in in really acquiring talent on the rosters. Right. That's what happens when you let the GMs actually do their job, perhaps. And there was a quote from an anonymous anonymous executive uh, right around when the quarantine started, I believe, that this would be the first time in a really long time that teams would have to evaluate players in the draft simply based on tape and combine. What would your response to that be? That's what it should have been, because, you know, at the end of the day, that's how you look at certain teams that uh, are always either in the playoffs or always in contention. It's usually the same five to six teams that are in contention every year because they tend to seem to only focus on what a guy can do, you know, and it seems to really Baltimore is one of them. That's where they never have a bad team. The Cowboys are another one. They never have a bad team as far as talent is concerned. Uh, So talent is going to get you at least eight wins and coaching can get you the rest of the way. Um, so, yeah, I think it should always be about the tape because anything else, guys are training for the 40. Um, you know, a workout is almost like a, you know, a first date. It's a great way to make an impression, but it's not a true representation of who you are as a person or who you are as a player. You have to really just trust what this guy has done for three years on film in the game that he's going to be required to play at the pro level. Definitely. And you mentioned the Ravens there. I mean, tying it back to them. We had you on around last summer. Like I mentioned, you were pretty bullish about their chances to do well in 2019. You were proven pretty right, I would say. And, you know, it's a historic regular season and, you know, followed up by a little bit of a disappointing playoff exit to just, you know, keep things real. What was kind of your perspective rewinding the clock back to late December, early January when they do make that quick exit. What was your perspective on what they needed to do this past offseason that we now have uh, a little bit more of a clearer picture on? Get better on a perimeter, period. And you saw that in the beginning. You saw that's why they drafted Marquise Brown and and Miles Boykin, and it still wasn't enough. And you saw that against Tennessee. You know, that was a winnable game. It wasn't like the Ravens got blown out, but it just couldn't complete passes. And it wasn't because of Lamar Jackson. It was, you know, they had some terrible drops in that ball game that there were critical parts of the game. Um, we see the the play of the the deep overall where the receiver, it goes right through his hands and that would have been a long touchdown that could change the game. Or we see plays happen on third downs that 
man, that was a huge drop. That's a big play. That is another you know opportunity to change the game. It wasn't like Ryan Tannehill is was gashing his defense. Um, and it, it's sad, sidebar, but it's funny that you, you don't hear people complain about Ryan Tannehill's contract after throwing 19 passes in the playoffs, but Dak Prescott can't get paid. Uh, you know, so but you saw the fact that the Ravens didn't have you know consistency on the perimeter. And you see what they addressed once they got into the draft. They got more receivers. Um, they got more explosive talent in the backfield with J.K. Dobbins. So I think they addressed what was the biggest issue for them moving forward. Because, yeah, all throughout the season it was, you know, the run game, tight end play, you know, Marquise Brown when he was healthy. Yeah, I still felt like he wasn't healthy all season. Like he was out there in spurts. Um, but, you know, they had to get better on the perimeter, and I thought they accomplished that goal. Absolutely. And even prior to the offseason, they started making some pretty big moves. And the first one that a lot of people forget when kind of evaluating, let's say, their offseason checklist or whatever, ranking the offseasons is Marcus Peters, who has been really, you know, a controversial figure and bounced around a couple times. And now he's back in Baltimore on a three year deal. And they got that done very quickly on a scale of one to ten. What is your confidence level that he remains with the Ravens for the duration of that deal and possibly longer? And just how do you feel about that deal? You know what's interesting about him? Every, everyone has like, you know, negative remarks or comments about Marcus Peters. But every time I watch the games, you know, he always has the ball in his hand and he always scoring touchdowns and he don't play offense. So that's the type of dude I want on my team. Um, and I'm glad they got the deal done. You saw the immediate impact he made uh, when he got there, you know, pick six and finding ways to turn the ball over and score the ball. Those are the type of players you want defensively. Can you score? Can you take the ball away? You know, can you score is is more along the lines of your offensive players. Can you put the ball in the end zone? Can you take the ball away? Or, you know, if you're a cornerback safety, um, you know, linebacker in coverage or a guy that can really, you know, sack the quarterback. Those are two impact. That's the two impact statements I look for or I make when I'm looking at, you know, talent and, you know, being able to, to keep one guy in house that has made a significant difference and it just further strengthens what is already a strength on the back end that secondary is it's a good thing for sure and the other big move they make ahead of the offseason Matt Judon franchise tag relative to your thoughts on him as a player what do you think Baltimore's uh long-term plan with him should be well if if they feel as though he's a difference maker they have to find a way to you know to you know sign him long term um and the franchise tag gives them an opportunity to buy more time to figure out how to get that done but if they view him as a difference maker, they're going to try to make sure they keep him. Baltimore doesn't do a, uh, a they don't do um, a terrible job of letting great talent leave. If you find him being a great talent, a, team, a guy that still can, can can grow his game and has upside that can be good for the next five years, you got to look in terms of, of that time frame, then, yeah, they're going to find a way to make it happen and pay him. Absolutely. And then getting into the actual offseason, the first couple moves that they made and really the only moves they made prior to the draft for the most part was bolstering the front seven with Calais Campbell and Derek Wolf. How would you sum up what these moves say about what the Ravens want to do in 2020? Well, you can really disrupt uh, blocking schemes and, and throw off everything up front if you got length, you know, and you look at what San Francisco did with length. And teams that usually have length, it, it, you know, you saw that before with Baltimore when you used to have like Chris Canty up along the line of scrimmage guys that just are long, big guys that just take up space because not only do they occupy blockers, but it keeps those linebackers clean and allow those guys to make plays. And when you got the length that they've added up front, 
it makes the back seven's job a lot easier. They can also get a little bit more creative in how they apply pressure. Um, and that length just really destroys, uh, you know, the way guys can move up front. I'm talking about the offensive line and not just having length, but being able to play with length. So you could have the long arms of Calais Campbell, but you have to be able to get your hands up quickly and get them on an offensive line, which he does, which is why they went after guys like him and Wolf. And those guys are, are really pressure players. They can push the pocket, play with that length, really slow up the run game. And, and you know, as far as how guards try to move and how to try to get outside on uh, outside zone plays, stuff like that. I'm talking about the, you know, the tackles and, and linemen. Um, if you got the length to really, you know, set a hard edge and, and really push, the, you know, reset the line of scrimmage, you're going to do a good job playing defense. Right, and the Ravens wanted to bring in Michael Brockers, and that ended up falling through. They gave him a decently high deal before kind of pulling back on that due to the ankle. How do you feel there might be a drop off, or uh, what do you what would you compare the difference between maybe Derek Wolf and Michael Brockers if there is any to you for Ravens fans that might not know those guys very well? I don't think there's that much of a difference. I mean, Brockers is a good player. Uh, Wolf is a good player. I think the biggest addition was Calais Campbell. Even at his age, you still like what he brings to the table. But I don't think there's a a drop off between him. Uh, I mean, between, you know, Brockers, Wolf, and, you know, a guy that they let go that I liked a lot, and, uh, Chris Warmly. So, I mean, you, you've, you've got a guy that can play up front that, you know, can do a job, put it to put it nicely. And you feel that that's why they added more pieces in a draft, rotational pieces to, to help fill certain voids of what those guys can or can't do. So it's not about finding a star talent. They, they, probably say hey we could you know we don't have to overpay for this this particular player we can get that guy and also backfill the the rotational depth with draft picks and it, it worked out well for him yeah so since the last time we had you on we did skype last time we've switched over to a streaming platform so people can uh watch and comment along and uh my buddy eric is in the comments here i uh, just wanted to get your quick take when is the uh bullshit with Taysom hill gonna stop <laughs> it, it won't the- stop and but you know what's interesting about that, and I, I, I had this is the issue I have a lot of times with you know this is why I love being an independent analyst. Um, now I cover on site primarily the Giants and Jets. I'm also at Eagles games, um, and I do a lot of college football. But I, I have no ties to the you know I'm not a fan turn you know reporter covering a team. Or not a beat writer, and so what it would prop what bothers me is that you know you get a lot of beat writers that you know tend to champion every move that they make or believe everything that they hear. And I remember getting into an argument. This was matter of fact. This was before I think day it was day three. It was a Saturday draft, uh, so it was oh, day three. Mm-hmm. So day three, the morning before day three, I'm having my fantastic you know, cup of coffee and uh, protein pancakes. Mm. And I'm just browsing Twitter and I see Saints beat writers telling me, arguing with me back and forth that Taysom Hill is, you know, the next, uh, the heir apparent, the next Steve Young. I'm like, well, wait. So if if you have the next Steve Young on the roster, then when Drew Brees got hurt, why would you bypass the next Steve Young and put in Teddy Bridgewater to start that game. Wouldn't you just go directly to the next Steve Young? And so another beat writer jumps in and was like, well, you know, they didn't want to lose what he brought to the table as a receiver because they were so thin. I was like, okay, so is he the next Steve Young or is he the next Jerry Rice? Because I'm confused now. Because, <laughs> you know, you have, from what you guys are telling me, you have Steve Young and Jerry Rice in one player. Um, and they not, and so that was before day three. 
as day three goes on, we saw the Saints trade back into the draft. So they gave up a 2021 pick to get a quarterback in Tommy Stevens that was just like Taysom Hill, that's not the best passer at all, but just more of a runner. And they signed Jameis Winston. So again, if you have the next Steve Young, why are you making all these moves to not put the next Steve Young in the game? And why would you even re-sign Breeze if you got the next Steve Young that's ready to go? So the Taysom Hill thing is just comical to me. It will never stop happening uh, because people want to believe in heroes, and that's their new hero. I mean, it won't stop happening until he gets into the game. It just makes a mess of it. But, yeah, a little off the run sheet there. I appreciate the game he had against the Los Angeles Chargers, the one where um, uh, Cardell Jones actually played his best game, I thought, as a Charger in a preseason game. Taysom Hill was a starting quarterback. He played the majority of that game and stunk. But people, again, they focus on the one deep ball he throws off a gimmick play and – that Odell Beckham throws. Exactly. They, bingo. And they, they hang on that and say, see, if you if you extrapolate that over 30 times a game, he could be like Drew Brees. Like, no, he he's, he can't. That's why He they could be like uh, Mo Sanu. I mean. Right. It's, it's, so, it's so terrible. It's so terrible. So um, Taysom Hill knows. And it's, it's a shame because Taysom Hill is, you know, he's he's not out there getting this, pushing for this, this uh, commentary. I mean, and people say, well, you know, that's because he's with the Saints. All right, let's go back to BYU. He stunk at BYU. They had Awful. to do Mangum. And Mangum was a better quarterback than Taysom Hill. And and, and he stayed hurt. So it's, it just doesn't make sense. And so it will never stop. As long as he's out there, um, you know, running around and people see that. It's funny because he's reckless and he runs and he tends to be banged up and can't really throw. He is what they think Lamar Jackson was. He is like a like I can understand maybe calling him a souped up Tebow a little bit, like a faster Tebow, but Tebow had so much more experience as a passer. And to call him Steve Young, like if you're gonna call someone Steve Young, you need to wait until they've had success to call them Steve. Like I just don't get it. I just don't get it. It doesn't make sense. And it's it's disrespectful to guys like Trace McSorley, to uh Lamar Jackson. To a certain extent, Josh Allen, like these guys have proven themselves to at least be passers for an extended period of time at the position. And this dude wasn't good as a passer when he had the opportunity. Um, and, you know, he's playing his role really well with the Saints. I think his, I wouldn't take him off the field because obviously the threat of him throwing is it makes it a different, unique, you know, it makes it unique. He has such a fun role. Right, right, and and it has to be it has to be taken and made into something that it's not, which is really unfortunate because he is such a fun role on the Saints. He's essentially an H back. Right, you know, we saw this before with the Dolphins when they had Jim Jensen uh, back in the '80s. So you have guys like that. Don't take him off the field because there's always a threat of the double pass. Plus, he's explosive. He's dynamic with the ball in his hands. Leave Blocks. him there as an H back. Exactly, Big. block. So that's your H back right there. So he should he should be a starter. Definitely as an H back. Really. Uh... Really had to get that in there. It's a little off the run sheet, and we're going to get to more Lamar talk, but I just knew that was going to wind you right up and just get us, you know, 10 minutes of A-plus content. So I had to get that in there. But just getting back onto the uh, script, I guess you could call it. So we're going to get a little bit more into the draft. Obviously, you're all over that. But uh, just sticking kind of with the free agents, the Ravens made a couple recent pickups in Pernell McPhee and DJ Fluker. So how much do, like, signings like that may kind of move the needle for you? I'm always a big fan of uh, 
veteran offensive lineman. You know, I, I always feel hesitant the way people say you got to take this offensive lineman unless you unless I know for a fact that you are Orlando Pace or someone like that. Um, I, I feel, you know, real hesitant to take a rookie that has gone from dominating 18, 19, 20 year olds and sticking him in, you know, a starting offensive line in a, in a pro game against 25 to 35 year old grown men and saying, man, you better hit the ground running or, you know, we need you to hit the ground running. And so I, which is kind of what happened to DJ Fluker to start his career. Right. And that's why you, you, you know, if you're going to take, I feel as though if you're going to take a lineman, you got to throw him in there, you know, sporadically as a rookie, get his feet wet. Maybe as a swing tackle, that extra uh, blocking tight end that you throw in there just to get his feet wet, get used to that, you know, play to play grind going up against consistent, explosive, strong talent. Cause you don't see that at uh, the collegiate level, um, no matter where you play, you know, you may have one guy that's strong, one guy that's explosive in the pros. They're both consistently, you know? And so it takes time for these guys to get used to that speed. So I always like getting veteran guys in there and a lot, you know, cause they have some skins on the wall and they have some experience in playing against that consistent talent. So I like the Fluker signing. I, I don't expect him to be a starter, but at least I know they have good depth there. A guy that can step in and is used to playing the pro game. And McPhee just adds another piece that they can use defensively because we know um, in the NFL it's all about maximizing your 46, which is your game day roster. And the more you can bring guys in that can keep guys fresh and keep that consistency going uh, because your front seven can rotate and change. But on the other side of the ball, their front five usually stays the same throughout the game. So you have a tired tackle or a tired guard going up against a fresh guy that can come off the edge. That's a win for the defense. Absolutely. And moving into the draft, uh, you're all over it when you come to player evaluation. I Like you were saying earlier, you're one of my favorites because you're independent. You're very, I don't want to say against groupthink, but you're hesitant to join groupthink. And in your videos, it seems like you really like what the Ravens ended up doing. So talking to the casual fan who doesn't follow the draft as intently as we do, how would you describe what was so good about Baltimore's strategy and the way they drafted this year? Listen, I think when you are able just to go in and add talent, you know, it's hard to lose when you have a talented football team. I think that's why what makes, you know, a team like Dallas so frustrating over the course of Jerry Jones's tenure, because they are never uh, the least talented team. You know, they he drafts extremely well and they keep a, a talented roster. Um, and so when you look at Baltimore, and what they did, I thought they drafted great talent. And so when you have talent and you combine that with great coaching, coaching is going to put talent in position to be talented. And so I had no issues with any of their picks as far as people are saying, J.K. Dobbins, why would you do that when you have, you know, whatever back that, you know, that the Ravens are going to put out there? I say whatever back because I don't want to single anybody out, but it's funny because people don't understand um, – how a guy like Lamar Jackson aids the run game. For instance, he wasn't CJ2K until Vince Young was in the lineup. You know, once Vince Young was out of the lineup, he was just regular Chris Johnson. You know, he wasn't 2K anymore. You know, so when you have a mobile quarterback, it helps the run game. And if you have a mobile quarterback in conjunction with an explosive back, that back is going to do wonders, which is why they went out and got Mark Ingram as opposed to staying with Gus Edwards, which is why they also went and got J.K. Dobbins. You look at Michael Vick when he had Warwick Dunn. It was the perfect match. Dunn averaged five and a half, almost six yards a carry. 
you know, Dunn was doing that on his own. Uh, you know, he was doing like 4.9, maybe five yards a carry without Michael Vick. But you add Vick there and it's a full yard difference in what he's able to do as runner because, the you know, it makes the run game a lot easier. So getting J.K. Dobbins was great. Adding more threats, catch and run guys on the interior with James Prochet and Devin Duvernay. Excellent. You know, because these are guys that are, you know, shorter guys, quicker guys, can, which means they can work themselves open quicker. They get the ball quicker and then they turn to running backs with the football in their hands. So, you know, I, I thought offensively did a great job, you know, building the depth along the offensive line. Uh, defensively, just adding key playmakers across the board, uh, depth at all all three levels. They revamped that linebacking core um, and they were able to add some depth in the secondary with some undrafted free agents. So I thought even because I always count the undrafted free agent market as a part of the draft class because, you know, that's the that used to be the eighth through the 14th round. Um, and so without that, now you really got to compete for those guys. And, then, and to be able to sign some of the quality guys that they got on, I look at some of these undrafted free agent classes um, as I'm grading the team's, you know, uh, draft classes. I'm like, man, sometimes they have had better undrafted classes than the guys that they drafted. Um, and so the, you, you put all that together and it shows a strong draft class for the Ravens, you know, even down to getting Tyler Huntley, the, the undrafted free agent quarterback. I thought he should have been drafted. I thought a team like Chicago would have been perfect for him or a team like Pittsburgh would have been perfect for him because he fits what they want to do offensively and he's efficient. But Baltimore is able to bring him in. Now they have four strong quarterbacks on their roster and, you know, to, to where they can, you know, trade one for assets or put one on a practice squad and, and have one just sit there and, and groom and develop. So all across the board, I thought the Ravens did an excellent job. If you had to pick one or two guys where you were going to put your stamp on it and say these are their one or two best value picks, who would they be? I would say um, Dobbins, one, and also uh, Duvernay. You know, I think Duvernay is, is a tremendous talent. You know, he is a guy that can play in the slot. You can motion him in the backfield, and, you know, he has the ability to carry the ball. Um, and so he's tough. And right now they have a void there for a third receiver. Because I think Boykin will take his next uh, step as, as a wide out. And Brown, you know, as from the looks of it, he has put put on some some good weight. Um, so he's going to be able to withstand the rigors of playing the pro game, and he's going to take another step forward in his second season. So Duvernay can come in and play that wild card move piece. Um, so I thought Duvernay was a, a tremendous pick for Baltimore. And, you know, just looking at what they – I like the linebackers, but I, I probably – as you guys probably seen in my mock draft, I had them going Jordan Brooks. And people thought, why would you have Brooks go in the first round? And he goes in the first round. Because Brooks makes plays, you know, and so I thought he would have been a perfect Baltimore Raven linebacker. Um, but they still address the linebacking position twice and got a guy, Malik Harrison, that's just a solid all around football player. And there's nothing wrong with being a solid all around football player. That type of player plays for about a decade. Um, Queen has a little bit more upside um, because he was only a one year starter. And, I, you know, I felt as though a little bit Queen got was the beneficiary of a lot of those LSU players got that. Um, national championship bump up, you know, so Queen may theoretically be a second round type talent, but they won national championship and he wears a single digit. So he's going to, you know, he's he going to bump him up a first round player, you know, so um, 
But the fact that they addressed the linebacker position, which was a big issue for them um, last year, which is why they made those moves in season. And then now, obviously, in the offseason, they want to continue to, to stockpile the athleticism and, and talent there. And I thought adding those two guys really helped put them on the track to where they're going to be better in 2020. Absolutely. And how do you feel on Queen's just general fit into Wink Martindale's defense and what he likes to do? Well, he, he's a guy that can cover. You know, he can get out there and play in space and it's not awkward out there and cover. He could, you know, cover in man. He, you know, he understands his own coverage. Um, you want to be, you want to see him be a little bit more impactful at the point of attack, but that's why you have Malik Harrison. Um, he's that guy. Uh, but Queen has the athleticism, the, the profile that you want. Um, and you hope he can grow into what you want him to be at the point of attack. Definitely. And I mean, one way or the other, it feels like he's going to be that guy wearing the green dot on his helmet, starting for them in the middle of that defense. Are there any other guys that you look at from this class that have a good chance to, if not start, at least see a ton of snaps from week one? Um, I think defensively, I was a big fan of Roderick Washington, a defensive tackle from uh, Texas Tech. You know, I thought his tape was underrated. As I'm watching, I watched him first. Uh, and was like, man, this dude's really owning the line of scrimmage. Then you subsequently see Brooks making all the tackles, you know, as a direct beneficiary of it. So I was higher on Washington than many. So I was glad to see him go uh, to a team that's going to utilize his versatile skill set because I he was playing the nose essentially at Texas Tech, but he's probably a- able to play the one, the three, the five, or whatever uh, across the board. And because of that versatility, it helps him out defensively and. and He'll be a matchup player. So depending on who they play that particular week, we'll determine the technique he'll play. Um, and I like that versatility. So I think between him, Metabuike out of Texas A&M, uh, those rotational matchup players uh, helps keep the, keeps that defense fresh. It keeps them uh, versatile. Uh, and I think Washington, you know, once we get into training camp, preseason, all that stuff like that, will prove to be a, a really good steal uh, where they ended up drafting them. Absolutely. And they made a couple of picks in the interior offensive line in the middle rounds uh, with Tyree Phillips. They basically immediately announced they're going to try and slide him inside and then Bredesen as well. Uh, the picture in the interior offensive line for the Ravens is pretty murky, especially after Marshall Yonda's retirement. So how do you assess the moves that they made in following Yonda's retirement? Yeah, Bredesen was my number three guard. So I'm high on Bredesen. I thought he was fantastic. Um, I, I was surprised he wasn't as much as people love to talk about offensive linemen on, on Twitter. I was surprised no one talked about, you know, how good he was because he was, you know, a really consistent player. Um, but again, when you just take good football players like Baltimore does, it's not surprising that they ended up with Bredesen. Um, so I, th- I thought that's a guy that, you know, can come in and, and probably compete, you know, for a starting role. And so when you're adding, you know, veteran, uh, you know, um, guys that play a lot of snaps in college, that were consistent in predominantly offenses that that are sort of similar to what they're doing in Baltimore, you're gonna you're gonna be fine. I think they're gonna be just fine up front um, because of the guys they added. I thought that Bredesen selection was tremendous. Yeah, we were on that same boat. And switching over to the other you know side of the line, um, you already touched on Matabuke and uh, Washington a little bit. What a kind of like impact would you say you'd expect from Matabuke this season? Maybe like a potential stat line you could you know foresee, and then what is the potential roadmap for Washington Washington to eventually uh, crack his way into the lineup? Well, I think for both guys, the you know whoever has the best technique out the two will determine how quickly you get on the field. 
um, technique is is the you know the great equalizer at the pro level. You know, and if you have great technique, you're going to be able to you know have a counter for the other person's counter. And so whoever has the better technique or displays you know the better technique of the two um, will find himself being in the mix a little bit more. So I can't really throw a stat line out there for Metabuike because defensive linemen stat lines, you know, especially if you're not playing, you know, defensive end edge rusher, like it's easy for me to say, oh yeah, Chase Young is going to have 10 plus sacks this year. But for a guy um, like Metabuike, I just think that, you know, it's, it's tough to throw out a stat line, but I will say between him and Washington, um, whichever one is the most technically sound will play early and often. Down here Absolutely. in the Baltimore-Washington uh, area, we've heard a lot of Chase Young stat lines, and they're all very optimistic, which I love. Yeah, it's easy to, to say, you know, oh, yeah, Chase Young, defensive end, it's going to get like 12 sacks, you know. Sure. But for someone that's a defensive lineman, uh, like Metabuike or, or Washington, first you got to know their role. You got to know how who's in front of them, their, you know, uh, snap expected snap count. And all of that right now is tough. Because you would ask me a couple years ago, I would have thought, Chris Warmley would have been a shoe in the start, and he didn't really start, you know, consistently until this past season where he was getting a lot of reps. And even then, he wasn't the difference maker that I envisioned him to be. I thought he was a solid player, but I expected him to be, you know, a little bit more dominant than he was. He was a good player, uh, a role player, um, and you need those. But obviously, so uh, he's he's moved on, and and so it just it's tough for me to unless you're playing defensive end. I know you're going to start at defensive tackle. You know, it's tough for me to, to really throw out a stat line. And I feel like Wormley is going to excel in Pittsburgh's scheme a little bit more where they ask a little bit more of that five tech and that three tech. Uh, but yeah, you said you were a fan of some of the undrafted pickups and what are your breakdown on some of those guys? I mean, John Daka, Chauncey Rivers, Jacob Breland, uh, you already mentioned Huntley. Daka, I saw a lot of, uh, you know, I cover a lot of FCS football um, at football game plan. So Daka, I saw him, you know, just dominate up front. Um, he was a down lineman at James Madison, but, you know, at 220, I think he's an outside edge rusher, so I grade him as an outside linebacker, but he can definitely get to the quarterback. He's explosive. The first step is is tremendous. Um, he's going to be a high-effort player. I think initially he's a core special teamer. Um, Michael Darius was another one that I saw a ton of. You know, I've been – I was a color commentator for about eight Georgetown games during his career and always wanted to see him get the football, their passing game was lacking. You know, if they had any uh, balance as far as throwing the football, Georgetown would have won the Patriot League at least twice um, because they had great defense, uh, great special teams, no offense, and because they couldn't find a quarterback that could really, you know, balance it out and throw the ball downfield. But when they did, they went to Darius. And Darius, you know, at six feet, 205 pounds, you know, he's a physical guy. Uh, you know, watching him work out before the game, you know, we're down on the field talking to coaches. Um, he he passes the off the bus look. You're like, man, that dude looks like a D1 receiver. You know, he has good explosiveness. Uh, he's a physical player. Um, and then I saw him compete down at the College Gridiron Showcase in January uh, and also in the uh, Tropical Bowl or FCS Bowl, which was in December. I was a color analyst on that game. Um, and Daytona Beach, and he, you know, he's going up against other FCS players, but he clearly separated himself as one of the best receivers there. So it shows you that, you know, you, you, you wasn't crazy when you were watching him, you know, get open during the season at Georgetown and 
not get the football. Um, so glad he has an opportunity to at least compete uh, down there at uh, in Baltimore. So I, I'm excited to see him. DACA, I think, is going to be a, a Ravens-type player. You know, uh, Huntley, the most efficient quarterback in college football. And, you know, that's over Burrow. That's over Jalen Hurts, over Tua. Um, he should. He was my actually number four quarterback. Uh, I had him graded Burrow, Hurts, Tua, and Huntley. Um, when you're efficient, you're staying on the field offensively. You're moving the football down the field. Uh, you're coming away with points. You're protecting the football. To me, that sounds like a pro quarterback. That's what you want. They call. Do that- you see him maybe uh, taking over for Trace McSorley in that maybe third quarterback role? Because I feel like McSorley is a little bit more limited talent-wise with his arm and things like that. Yeah, I think for McSorley it's going to be about they're going to try to make him be um, the Jim Jensen or Taysom Hill for that team. Uh, right, wrong, or indifferent, you know, I thought he played well enough in the preseason to warrant, you know, staying at quarterback. And I always viewed him as a quarterback, rate him as a quarterback uh, when he came out in his draft class. But I do think the competition will be between him and Huntley. Um, but the good part is, is that Huntley is it's hard to – um, punish a guy for not turning the ball over, you know, and, and as long as you don't turn the ball over, you're going to stay on the field. And the jump this dude made from his junior season to last year was significant because you saw when he was healthy and out there, Utah was a different team this year. They they were in the they were in contention for the playoffs until that Pac-12 title game um, where their defense just couldn't stop the run. And, and so when you look at Huntley, Huntley is a guy that that will always keep the offense on pace. He fits the mold of what they want at the position. Um, he's not, you know, he's more RG3 than he is Lamar Jackson, um, but he definitely adds another strong quarterback to the room. Again, if he falls out in the preseason, they may keep him or they may look at as him as an asset that they can trade off. Um, but I think it just, that room right now is probably one of the strongest, if not the strongest, pound for pound in the in the uh, NFL. Four deep, they go. Yeah, I mean, God willing, the preseason goes off without a hitch. It feels like that's going to be a really fun battle between McSorley and Huntley. But one last draft question here. James Brochet got a lot of buzz about a guy, even from John Harbaugh, who could maybe come in and contribute in the return and special teams game. Feels like he has some tendencies that maybe he could, you know, be an NFL receiver at some point where he could crack into the rotation and uh, just kind of be one of those guys. What do you think he sort of has to work on to get to that point? Well, for, for me, it's, it's just about um, in Baltimore, at least you're really vying for that that uh, that third spot. Can he be more dynamic at, at, at the position than Duvernay? You know, because I feel like they're going to be playing for the same spot. Um, and what's interesting is that when you look at Prochet coming from that program at SMU and their illustrious history, you know, he's one of the top receivers, if not the top receiver there. So it speaks volumes to what he is able to do. Um, he is a Terrific short area route runner. So your slants, your pivot routes, your darts, those things, he can, he'll get open quickly. Um, and because of that quickness, Harbaugh, special teams guy, understands the value of him as your punt returner too. You know, it wouldn't surprise me to see Prochet and Duvernay both back deep at a uh, punt returner, you know, because teams will try to kick away from the one punt returner. Um, and try to kick it out of bounds, but it's hard to do that when you got two good punt returners back there. I'm surprised more teams don't do that. Uh, more we used to see it back in the day where you had two guys back deep returning punts. Um, but with Prochet, he's he's a, a crafty route runner. 
He's got strong hands at the catch point. Um, he can play a little bit outside, you know, if, if need be. But I think his home at the next level will be on the inside. Uh, so I think they got two good players, Duvernay and, and Proche, at the same position. Um, but when you stretch that out, if they want to go four wide and take the tight end off the field, you know, and have a, an extra back back there and Dobbins, that's hard to defend because now you got guys that can really win one-on-one matchups and, and, and work themselves open. So there will be a role for Proche. I think whoever wins that battle out of him or Duvernay, the loser will be the you know starting returner, and uh, the, the other guy, the winner, will be this number three. Um, but they're going to all see a lot of playing time, especially in this offense. I think what we're going to see with this offense is the growth from uh, year one with Lamar. We saw it was more running back base. Year two was more tight end base. Year three, you're going to see more receiver base, and I think that's why they were able to to you know really let. Um, Hayden Hurst go or trade Hayden Hurst for some assets. They beefed up on a receiver side of things. Um, so we're going to see this offense take another growth step forward because people think this when people think they figured out the Ravens offense, they're going to add another element. It's going to be more receiver base and it's going to be the, the passing game a little bit more so than tight ends. And therefore, it's going to continue to keep teams guessing and be another you know wrinkle that they have uh, at their disposal. Right. And being multiple is very important for the growth of this offense. And speaking of which, I mean, we had you on last year and you had probably the highest praise of Lamar Jackson of anyone, including us, who both were strong. I, I, I predicted you know, him to be maybe a dark horse for MVP, but you were adamant that he was going to be the elite player that he turned out to be this past season. What would another leap in 2020 look like to you? Uh, how does it end up looking on the field? What are the differences and where does that leave the Ravens? I think the the, the biggest leap you want to see from Lamar is uh, knowing when and where to be aggressive. And I think, you know, at, in his rookie year, it was more about just getting out there and just playing and, you know, trying to, you know, then this year you saw him go out there and develop more as far as within the offense. They, they were, okay, we're going to allow him to, go out there and just throw it 30 times a game. And I felt like at times, and you tend to see this a lot with, uh, you know, with black quarterbacks, they want to prove that, oh, I can stay in the pocket. Just play your game, you know, be unapologetically you. And so at times he hung in there a little bit too long to try to make a play in the pocket, in the pocket, just go out there and ball out and just play. And so I think you'll see, this year, him be a little bit more judicious with uh, his decisions as far as, you know what, that's not open. I'll run, get out of bounds. I won't try to do too much. I'll run, pick up 20 yards because I'm faster than everybody, slide. Or I may hit the check down this time and let the running back do do work on these in, you know new slot receivers we added, let those guys do the work. So you'll see a little bit more of a, of a patient game from Lamar, I believe. A little bit more, I trust my guys to make more plays in anything. I won't try to, you know, make every play the highlight play. You know, if it happens, great. Um, but now in year four, I don't have to, or year three, I don't have to do that. So, you know, I can, I would feel comfortable dumping the ball off to my guys short. I feel comfortable to really throwing the ball away, even though I know my throwaways will, people will say I'm inaccurate uh, because I threw the ball away. But, you know, if it was Kirk Cousins, they said that was a great decision. So even though I know I'm going to get, you know, killed by the media for throwing the ball away. I'm going to throw the ball away because it's the best play for right now. I don't have to like, 
try to force a scramble and run around and maybe lose yards. So I think you'll see a little bit more patient trusting of his the weapons he has around him. He will now feel like he has to make the play. There's a bunch of guys out there that can make the play for him. So the numbers will probably look the same, but the efficiency, I believe, will be a little bit better, which was great last year. I think it'll be better this year, and the Ravens' offense will still be top five. His statistics in every sense pretty much were historic. I mean, just production, efficiency, all of that. Based on the moves that kind of were made, you know, losses and additions kind of around him this offseason, how do you assess his chances to go out and sort of repeat what he did statistically? Because it seems like the consensus is that he's going to take a little bit of a statistical dip just based upon regression trends. Well, we know uh, certain quarterbacks are just differently. We saw this happen with Dak Prescott as a rookie where he won rookie of the year and finished third in the MVP voting as a rookie because he only threw four interceptions. You say, well, he's going to have a drop-off. Oh, yeah, duh. He's not going to throw, you know, four interceptions again, you know. Um, just like people say, well, Pat Mahomes is going to have a drop-off. He threw 50 touchdowns, and, yeah, he's going to have a drop-off, but it still was 30-something-plus touchdowns or 40 touchdowns he threw uh, this past season. So, yeah, technically, statistically, it was a drop-off, but the play was still the play. And I think Lamar Jackson's play will still be the play. People will – nitpick because they want to be right about him not being a good player. Um, and you see that a lot across the board with people that were wrong on him. They're trying to find a new one. Well, yeah, you know, it's because he, you know, my favorite is when they say, oh, well, you know, Baltimore had to truly buy. I mean, they built, I mean, they built everything around him. They had to like, you know, redesign the stadium. They got better grass. Everything they did was to make sure this dude is actually good. Like, nah, he was always, you know, he just was a hater, you know, so. I think when you look at Baltimore this year, Lamar's going to have his uh, his Lamar-like season. Quietly, he had that season as a rookie, but people weren't ready for that discussion. Um, and he'll have it again this year, whether he wins the MVP or not. I think you'll see the, the biggest jump you'll see is from everyone's other favorite punching bag right now is uh, Dwayne Haskins. I think he's going to have the significant jump in year two now that he has a coach that actually wants him to play. Um, and quietly, when you look at the the options that they have around him, the passing game is going to have to be prevalent. I think more people should worry about their run game. Anything you have an older Adrian Peterson, you have a bunch of injured backs behind them that are talented. Talking about Bryce Love, talking about Darius Geis, guys that have banged up uh, injury histories behind a guy that's thirty eight years old. So the run game to me is more of the issue. Than right. Haskins. So look for Dwayne Haskins to take that Lamar leap or that Mahomes leap in his second season. Absolutely. And um, based on some of the moves that were made this past offseason, or excuse me, how confident are you that the Ravens are able to get over the hump and win that playoff game, maybe get to that championship game, the AFC championship game this year? I think they I think they can do it. And here's the thing. It's about, you know, when guys press, when guys want it too hard, um, it could not happen. And I tweeted it out before. Some people don't understand that when I when I say that um, you could want it bad and, and it not work out for you. Like, for instance, a receiver that, that drops a pass, you know, he knows he can catch the football. He can catch that pass in his sleep. Now he's going to go out there and overcompensate, try to show people, you know, I can catch. And he's going to end up dropping some more passes. You saw that in the Jordan documentary, The Last Dance, uh, where in, in the beginning part of his career, when he's in the playoffs and competing, he felt like he had to play 48 minutes and score 75 points until he realized I can trust my teammates to make plays. I can then play a better game because of it. I can trust my teammates. 
then he gets over the hump and they go on and win, you know, God knows what, six championships, three separate, two separate uh, three-peats. So I look at Lamar in the same sense. I felt like his rookie year against San Diego or Los Angeles, I'm sorry, they, he wanted to go out there and just continue to build on what he did, the momentum to get into the playoffs, try to make it about, you know, making plays and being dynamic. This past year, it was like he didn't trust some of the guys out there. And that's not knocking some of the guys out there, but, you know, you got to make plays. And there were some plays to be made that were left out there on the field. And Lamar's not the type to call anybody out. This year, I think you're going to see him trust those guys more and trust that they can make the play. And he's going to give them every opportunity to make the play. Case in point of an, of an example that I think will, you know, be extrapolated over the course of the season, the mindset, go back to that Seattle game and how Mark Andrews dropped every pass thrown his way. Like it was so many passes that was like, bro, what are you doing? Like your point shaving. And, but Lamar kept going to him right. until he made some great catches down the stretch in that game. Exactly. I think you'll see that with the receiving core this year with the, with the added and what they already have on the roster. He'll trust those guys more, and those guys will pay him back by making those plays. Right, and with Hollywood and Mark Andrews, there would be a zip on the ball sometimes and a quick decision, and the ball comes flying out, quick release, great mechanics. And there was just that hesitation to Boykin and, and Sneed and Roberts some of the times where you just don't see that same zip, that same confidence in the throw. And I think you're exactly right there. Yeah, it's, it's going to be fun to watch um, because Baltimore is set up for success because they got the most important position correct, and that's quarterback. And, um, you know, they, they are always adding talent. Defensively, it's just a mindset. So no matter who they have out there, the defense will still – you still think you're watching Ray Lewis and – you know, uh, Peter Bowl were out there. It doesn't matter who's wearing the helmet or uniform on defense. You just feel like they're going to play great defense because it's just what Baltimore does. So that's a mindset. But offensively, I think you'll see them take an even better step or bigger step, I'm sorry, this year. And I just think the team will be right back in the playoffs uh, with a chance for the number one seed. Definitely. And uh, that's what we love to hear. That's what our listeners love to hear. And uh, this was a Tremendous appearance by you, my man. I really appreciate you hopping on ahead of this holiday weekend. Um, great stuff, as always. Where can uh, the listeners of this show find you on social media, find your work? Let them have it, man. Well, they can follow me on Twitter at FBallGamePlan. Um, they can subscribe to our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash FootballGamePlan. Uh, if you still want a copy of our draft guide, it's still there. If you want to see our thoughts on 689 prospects, that's individual scouting reports. It's not like you know, talking about the top 10 players and then listing players 11 through 50. No, every player that we watch has a scouting report. So all the guys that I didn't get into on this podcast, on this show, is there in our draft guide. So you can go and cop that still at footballgameplan.com slash 2020 draft guide. Definitely. Well, thanks a ton, as always, like I said, and you have yourself a great holiday weekend, man. Appreciate you guys. Do the same. Stay safe. Stay away from people. Keep the mask on. You got it. Bye. All right, thanks a lot. Appreciate you guys. See you later. All right, God bless. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs>